according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, as we deal with Hagene. I don't know what to call this woman. In the Greek, Hegune is uh, the woman. The definite article, He, in the feminine, and then Gune, na- uh, feminine noun. It's where we get all our Gune-type words that relate to women. Misogynist is a woman hater, and from Maseo and Gune, and <clears throat> the medical terms as they relate to Gune as well. In any event... Since the Lord did not uh, was not pleased to give us her proper name in this text, I guess I should stop being so frustrated over the fact that I don't know her proper name. Maybe I'll just keep calling her Hegene. In any event, remarkable lady, and we will examine her once again on this day. Before we do this, take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before the throne of grace this morning with thankfulness. Thankfulness that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Thankful, Father, for the faithfulness that you uh, manifest in our lives day by day to even give us an opportunity to assemble together and receive instruction. Thankful for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and guides us in the truth. Thankful that we even have ears to hear. So, Father, we thank you for the spiritual eyes you've given, the spiritual ears you've given, and the renewed heart that's being transformed into the image of Christ. And we ask now that your word will not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's deal with this woman and the uh, exposure of her wickedness, which she's not at all alarmed about, not at all worried about, not offended by, or any other such thing. And if only we could be so humble when the word of God skewers us and when that sword pierces to that dividing asunder and lays all things bare. We uh, we need to have that kind of humility that simply gets excited over the fact that the word of God is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And uh, rather than getting offended over uh, our uh, imperfections coming to light. We uh, dealt with this already in previous sessions, starting with event number 10, where he leaves for Galilee and points a study related to the uh, need for Jesus Christ to get out of town very quickly. He's in tremendous haste as he is escaping from the Judean region there as arrests are being made as uh, uh, John himself is arrested and will very shortly be beheaded. And uh, as the Lord escapes, not taking the normal route to that is crossing the River Jordan, (coughs) traveling northbound through the Perean region, and then recrossing the River Jordan to enter into Galilee itself, he and his disciples are actually plunging due north, venturing through the uh, hostile Samaritan territory, uh, and also not taking the time to stock up on provisions before they get out of town. You know, if they were really... If they had the leisure and the time to store all their food and their, their provisions and so forth for the entire journey, they could have done so. But the indication is here where uh, he sends his disciples in to buy food, um, gives us the indication that they didn't stop long enough in Judea to do that before they left. They, they uh, immediately fled in the middle of the night or day, afternoon, whatever time it was. They did not wait to even stock up on provisions, but they got out of town immediately. All right, now that setting the stage then brings us to the 11th point in the Harmony of the Gospels as we deal with the uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, very rapidly approaching the uh, start of the Galilean ministry. We, we take a look at the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and we... Uh, didn't get too far with this because we got caught up in a study on Sikar and we were reminding ourselves of the different events that were centered in Shechem. So having really only covered a couple of points of study and left off with point three, am I correct? Anyone with last week's outline? All right, point two then. What begins as an apparent chance encounter quickly becomes a very fruitful ministry. And I can't emphasize enough the aspect of divine guidance through a believer coming to recognize that a coincidence in his life is not exactly a coincidence. 
when we start to examine all of the things that happen, for example, around Austin Bible Church and the reasons why he does the things that he does and the people that he brings in and the, the gifts that he supplies to this ministry and the people that he brings into this ministry. And uh, amazing to stop and consider the faithfulness of divine guidance, for example, our present ministry opportunities in Horseshoe Bay and the opportunity to, to uh, launch a local church there if that's, in fact, what God's doing. Well, all of this coming about by virtue of Family members of family members of folks that the Lord brought in here to get face-to-face teaching at Austin Bible Church. So we look at these things and recognize that there is no such thing as coincidence. The God the Father has not left anything to chance. He hasn't just simply, you know, put a, a pretty good plan in motion where he can roll the dice and see how it all shakes out after that. He's put a perfect plan in motion that has every detail worked out every step of the way. And so we want to be more eager to stop necessarily assigning things to coincidence and start uh, start recognizing that the father works a perfect plan together in some very amazing ways what begins as an apparent chance encounter quickly becomes a very fruitful ministry so we have verses five through seven there's jesus he's tired he's sending the disciples in to buy food he's hanging out there by the well you'd think that this was planned well it was because here comes this woman and here comes the, the spark that's going to launch a tremendous revival in uh, this entire city. All right. Now, point two. <coughs> Horrible throat this morning. Excuse me. Sikar, Sikar, or Sukar. You can pronounce this any way you like with the, uh, the Greek upsilon and then filter it through the Latin where your U's become Y's. And by the time we reach in the English, who knows how to pronounce this thing? But it is identified with Shechem in the Old Testament. This is where we really spent the bulk of our time one week ago, going back to Genesis 33, uh, 34, reminding ourselves of some of the horrible events that happened there with Dinah and the, the men of Shechem. Uh, also taking note of... Uh, uh, Jacob's death and the uh, land that he had promised to Joseph in chapter 48, then the uh, actual uh, burying of Joseph's bones in Joshua 24, the reference that Stephen makes to it in his walk through in Acts chapter 7 and verse 16. So we set the stage for this. It's a interesting location. There's a lot of uh, geography and history, even from the Old Testament standpoint of the Jewish involvement there as they came into conflict with the Canaanites, the Shechemites there. But then it even gets more interesting when we see what happens at the end of the Old Testament after the exile by virtue of not Canaanites, but Assyrians. By virtue of the Assyrians that have been transplanted in and the intermarriage with the Assyrians at that point of time. And I expect that we will spend some time this morning in dealing with that. So if last week we were dealing with Jacob and his sons and the interaction, the conflict with Canaanites, uh, we're going to see what happens in the later centuries when the uh, Jews are expected to interact with these uh, Assyrian refugees and the development of the Samaritan people, a people that was formerly not a people, but becomes a, a hybrid of Assyrians with Jews in this half-Jewish um, religious people that we see here. But before we get that far, let's look at point three. Jesus was physically tired due to the circumstances of his hasty travel out of Judea. We have a perfect active participle of kapiao, K-O-P-I-A-O, kapiao, number 2872. We have it stated plainly in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. The primary verb is sitting, that's what he was doing, but the, ex- the explanation being given here in terms of a perfect active participle, having become exhausted to the point that he continues to be exhausted, Jesus was sitting at this well or even on this well. Preposition makes it a little confusing as to whether he was just you know, nearby or there, actually sitting on the lip of the thing. You know, it, it makes it uh, rather unavoidable that uh, she would have to say at least something to him or acknowledge his existence if he was actually seated right there on the edge of this well as she approaches it, trying to, very deep well, trying to uh, lower her cup down in there in order to draw the water forth. Kapiao is a wonderful word study. I would encourage you to engage in that word study. You will recognize that it is an expectation of Christian ministry. (laughs) That pastoring or shepherding or 
teaching the word or serving or any other ministry that you are called to do um, will lead to such exhaustion as you labor to the point of exhaustion. And Paul wrote of this frequently, how he would struggle on behalf of the Corinthians or the Ephesians or the Philippians or the various folks that he would write to. Kapiao is a fun term because it's a term that denotes service, but it stresses the the fact of exhaustion through the point of that service. And for those who aren't slacking, for those who aren't just simply uh, drifting through their Christian life, but are serious about accomplishing that which the Lord has sent them to do, it will be exhausting work. And we see this here uh, exemplified for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Point four. A lone Samaritan woman came out to draw water. A lone Samaritan woman. You know, just this statement, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, communicates tremendous volumes when you do the, the homework along with it, when you do the geography work, when you do the, the archaeology work and the circumstances here. Notice it doesn't say there came women. There came a woman, singular by herself. Now how many times how many times in the Old Testament have we seen women at a well? And it's always in the plural. Say when uh, Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for his son and and the servant is on his way and he's praying and he he wants to make sure that he's not going to get the wrong woman. He wants to be able to know how to how to identify the right woman for Isaac because there's going to be a crowd of women there. And so he makes a prayer request and the Holy Spirit grants that prayer request. And the woman that had the right statement and the right attitude and the right grace and humility was the woman that the servant was going to recognize as being God the Father's directive will for the bride of Isaac. But there were multiple women that came out at that time. When uh, Jacob goes to the well, multiple women. When Moses shows up at a well there, and Jethro's daughters were uh, shepherding the flock there because Jethro didn't have any sons. Again, we have multiple women. Typically, that's what we would expect to find at a particular time of day that it was normal for the women to gather together and to go out and to gather the water that, that they needed, their cooking water, cleaning water, the other household water that was required, and to bring it back within the city. Very much uh, not only for you know, protective interests and security of the of the women involved, but also for the fellowship aspect of the women involved, which I've never been able to figure out, but there's a great mystery. And if I can ever figure it out in Scripture, I'll have some answers. But it just is the amazing phenomena of the fact that when you're in a restaurant and a woman decides she's going to go to the restroom, cannot figure it out, but there tends to be a group process. By which I don't know that it's ever been identified for a single woman to ever go unaccompanied. Say, am I being sexist here this morning? Anyway, in life and in scripture, we're acknowledging the fact that the typical routine is for multiple women to be going to the to the well together, to be going and drawing water together. And the the uh, concept of this woman coming out by herself is indicative, indicative of her being uh, the social outcast that she is, indicative of her not being in uh, good repute with the other women, which we'll find out here shortly why. Uh, Also, the aspect of the fact that this is not the standard well for the city. There was one indeed much closer on the west side of the city. Um, This one on the eastern side of the city further up is uh, really out of the way and remote. And here she is. There was another well on the west side of the city, which was much closer and the more common well by which water was drawn by the women. Um, But here in this instance, we see no other women are coming out with this woman. And we have the concept of her as the outcast and not being accepted by the women. It's interesting when she gets excited about coming across the Christ, she does not have like-minded women that she can go and report to or go and seek counsel of older women or younger women or women of her own age, but she goes to the men of the city with whom she has several contacts, all right? Not the godly contacts, but at least she has contacts with these men. And they are the ones that she is going to convince to come out and investigate this traveler who professes to be the Christ. She's convinced of it and she wants the men of this city also to be convinced of it. 
Now, who in the world were these Samaritans? And we'll spend some time with point five. The Samaritans were a mixed race of Gentiles, and not just Jews, idolatrous Jews. The Samaritans were a mixed race of Gentiles and idolatrous Jews. That's who we're dealing with when we deal with these Samaritans. They considered themselves to be Jewish. The Jews didn't. If the Jews, if they were honest, would at least admit that they were half Jewish, but they rarely went that far. <laughs> but the Samaritans considered themselves to be entirely Jewish. They considered Jacob to be their father, as this text here even states, when uh, she scorns Jesus and says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? All right, in verse 12. So they do claim the Jacob paternity. But they, um, and they claim the Pentateuch, they claim the writings of Moses as being valid for their worship and their practice. They have a form of the Jewish faith, but not having the Psalms and not having the non-Mosaic writings. They were, of course, cutting themselves short in that regard. Let's take a look at some of these texts, starting with 2 Kings 17. And we may have to get some other context beyond 2 Kings 17, just to uh, remind ourselves of what's going on here at this point. After the death of Solomon, the kingdom was split. When Solomon's son, uh, Jeroboam, be, uh, I'm sorry, Rehoboam becomes king of, the, of uh, Israel, <coughs> Jeroboam leads the northern ten tribes to form a separate kingdom. And the problem with that yeah, I'm going to try to get a little bit of groundwork here before I take you into 2 Kings 17. So let's grab the 1 Kings passage first. And that might help us a little bit. 1 Kings 12 to establish some of this context. 25 through 33. Because... David was a man after God's own heart. David reigned for 40 years, faithful to the Lord. Obviously, he had problems along the way and sin and so forth. Who doesn't? But by and large, from beginning to end, David's was a faithful reign. And every king that followed David would be compared back to David. And Scripture would call some of these kings good kings and would call some of these kings bad kings. You can even color code them if you want to. <laughs> good or bad. Because that's what Scripture does. And the pattern will be how they related to the Lord in comparison to David. If they served the Lord as David their father had done, they were called a good king. Even if perhaps it was not with all their heart, even if perhaps they had some failure to root out some idolatry somewhere, if by and large they served the Lord as David their father had done, then in the official record in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, they were called a good king. If they failed to serve the Lord unlike David, their father, then they were called a bad king, see. Well, um, David, Solomon, we know how Solomon ended in the tragic failure at the end of his life. And when Rehoboam then becomes the king, we have this civil war and uh, the issues here as are described in 1 Kings chapter 12. And uh, if you want to read through the first uh, 24 verses, you kind of get a picture for the uh, foolishness of Rehoboam and his pig-headedness and the different things there. But let's just see the aftermath of it, starting in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the whole country of Ephraim. This is the same Shechem that we're dealing with here in Sakkar. It was destroyed a number of times and rebuilt a number of times. Here it's being rebuilt. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. See, he's, he sets up an alternate kingdom and he builds a city and he sets up his capital. But he realizes he has a problem because the temple's still down there in Jerusalem. And no matter what he does up north, the temple's still down there in Judah, in Jerusalem. He says, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to the Lord, even to, I'm sorry, to their Lord, lowercase l, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
He said, you know, he realizes real quickly that by setting up this competing kingdom, and, and even though he's got 10 of the 12 tribes, he doesn't have the temple. And he realizes this is a problem. So what's the solution? Obviously not to humble himself and return the kingdom back and submit to Rehoboam. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not the answer. The answer is we need a competing religion to keep these people from going down to Jerusalem. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. <laughs> you, know, you thought the single golden calf that Aaron came up with during Moses' time, you thought that was bad. Now we're going to double the stakes. And he makes two golden calves. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Obviously, that's too far to travel, too inconvenient. People consider the same thing today when they try to estimate how far is too far to drive to church. Um, it's just too far to go to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods. Well, here's some gods we made for you. O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. These are the gods that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. All right, Dan at the far north, Bethel, where it was situated. And there, here's two options for them to go. Pick one. You know, whatever is more convenient for you. If you're more northern, go to Dan. If you're more southern, come over here to Bethel. But you don't need to go to Jerusalem. That's just way too far. All right. So he set one in Bethel, the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, obviously. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Interestingly enough... Dan, being as far north as it was, was out of the way, <laughs> a long distance. It would have been shorter to go to Jerusalem, and I find that to be extraordinary. But he sets him up in Dan and in, and in uh, Bethel. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who are not of the sons of Levi. <laughs> but you've got to have some kind of priesthood. And the faithful priests and the faithful Levites, where were they? Down in Jerusalem. They were staying in Judah, worshiping at the temple. All right. So he's got to come up with another, with an alternate non-Levitical priesthood. And Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. All right. We uh, did this as an exercise with the teenagers some time back where we created our own religions. Not hard to do. Now, for the teenagers, they were a little awkward with it at first. They were a little slow to kind of warm up to the idea. They weren't sure where I was taking it. And we were doing it as a group project. So we'd start with somebody and say, okay, what are we going to call this religion? Or what kind of feature are we going to have with this religion? And just different things. And uh, they, were, they were real reluctant to make up anything. you know, Because <laughs> they were grounded in truth, accustomed to the fact that God is the one who establishes parameters for worship and things. And it was a little awkward for them to try to create it themselves. But once they started catching on to the idea that we were just simply making stuff up and making a game out of it, they started to warm up to the whole concept. And we got around the table, gone past two or three of the young people, and we got to, to, to Walter Carnegie. And uh, he, uh, all of a sudden, it dawned on him that if, if we're free to make this stuff up, well, then let's, let's just make it however we want to make it, and let's serve ourselves. And so he got to Walter, and Walter said, uh, actually, I'm going to be the high priest of this religion. Say. So he set himself up as the high priest. Well, why not? If you're making it up as you go along, see? And then Adam figured, hey, wait a minute. You're right. We can do whatever we want to do with this. You know, what our activities are going to be and the food we're going to eat and the gifts that have to be given. And so they really started to get into the, into the process. Well, that's what we have here. We have the human creation of a religion. A human creation and it's nothing but just simply rank idolatry for self-serving purposes so that Jeroboam can build a loyalty among these people that won't go back and worship Jehovah, go back and worship the Lord and the temple in Jerusalem and recognize that they are still God's covenant people and they are subject to a Davidic king. All right? Jeroboam is not a Davidic king. And uh, this he's, he's just as illegitimate and phony as this religion is. Now, that gives you a sense for the background on this 
because these are the very Jews, these idolatrous Jews are the ones that will intermarry with the Assyrians to form the Samaritan people. All right. Now over to second Kings. Fast forward uh, a number of chapters and a couple hundred years to second Kings. Chapter 17. Common, uh, common practice as Assyria would conquer a people. You'll kind of get the idea here at the end of Israel and why Israel falls in Second Kings 17. This happens in, uh, let's see, it starts off here in, the, in verse 1, says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, by the way, all the northern kings only did evil. There was not a single good king in the northern kingdom. Uh, Shalmaneser says in verse 3, King of Assyria came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers uh, to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. By now the capitals in Samaria had moved from Shechem to Penuel to a couple other places to Samaria where it finally settled. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. Now why were those cities vacant? Because previously he had conquered the Medes and he had moved them elsewhere and settled them elsewhere. See, this was the practice for of the Assyrians for not only conquering a region, but then actually hauling away the entire populace and re-transplanting, re-transplanting them elsewhere to a location that they didn't have familiarity with, to a location that they didn't have sentimental uh, attachments to or loyalty to or any kind of identification with them as a people in terms of their geography, their territory, their heritage, see, the uh, the roots they might have in terms of their forefathers and where they uh, grew up and built and developed and so forth. All right. Now, as in keeping with the standard practice, and you can imagine we have similar concepts today, maybe not as much. Are we losing this as a culture where we, our families no longer maybe have the roots that go as deep because we, there's faster transportation now, we move more frequently now and different things. I mean, when I read back through my family history, it seems anyway <clears throat> that when the, when the Klan moved from Pennsylvania to, to Illinois, it was a significant event and that they established residency in Illinois and they stayed there for several generations and spread out and developed, uh, you know, attachments in that particular region. And then the the actual move from there into Iowa and the move from Iowa to Oregon, these things didn't just happen quickly or, or with much frequency. It seemed that people would put down roots and stay there. And in the ancient world, of course, you have traditions and you have legacies and you have a sense of, of pride in, in achievement and so forth. That, you know, this is the city, like Rome, for example, the city that our forefathers built, the city that, you know, Romulus and Remus established, the city that, you know, and, 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 a, and a native people would develop a pride, sometimes legitimate, sometimes obviously carnal and illegitimate, but they would develop a sense of identity based upon their achievements, based upon what they've built and how long they've been there and their sense of permanency rooted in the, the geography, the land that, that they were born in. And, and in so many ways, the Assyrian methodology of transplanting people and ripping them out of that heritage and ripping them out of the, any kind of uh, location where they have uh, any loyalty to that, I find to be quite interesting. So the Jews are hauled away, most of them. There will be um, stragglers, there will be those who escape, refugees and so forth, some that had fled to Judea. Uh, to avoid the advancing Assyrians and so forth. There will still be some stragglers. But now notice. So most of the ten tribes are carried away to uh, Halah and Habor and the river Gozan in the cities of the Medes. Now verse 7. We have an explanation why, and it should be fairly obvious. They were idolaters. 
This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. And walked, verse 8 says, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. And uh, verse 9, the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and every green tree. They burned incense in all these high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. They did evil things provoking the Lord. And then you'll notice uh, down here the issue of the, uh, the two calves in verse 16. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. They uh, made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practice divination and enchantments. So they had child sacrifice, Moloch worship, witchcraft, sold themselves to do evil on the side of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, Benjamin got attached to Judah. Now, um, the transplant of people in starts in verse uh, 24. Verse 23 says, The Lord removed Israel from his side as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthah and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria. Cities, plural. He wasn't just a single city. The cities, plural, of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. So here come these Assyrian peoples from these various clans, including the Babylon clan, Cuthath, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, five different regions of Assyria, of, of Assyrian conquest brought in here and transplanted here. Now, they start to have some problems. And uh, it's interesting. Obviously, this is the promised land still. It belongs to Israel. They might be idol worshipers. They might be under divine discipline. They might be under divine judgment. They might be removed into captivity. But in spite of what God's doing to discipline them, this is still their land. And so these Gentiles that are brought in and made to live here, they don't handle it very well. And God sends them some discipline here. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear Jehovah. That's the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The land's not cooperating with these new inhabitants. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, we have a problem. (laughs) The nations whom you have carried away in exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. They recognize it's divine. They recognize it's beyond the realm of humanity here. These aren't just normal lions. And um, we don't know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them. And behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, again, remind ourselves, what kind of priest was this? A priest that was carried away from Samaria to live in Assyria was not a legitimate son of Aaron, Aaronic or Levitical priest. He was one of the priests that Jeroboam had set up from whatever tribe happened to be handy to become a priest of the, the two golden calf idol worship of Jeroboam. All right. They didn't send to Jerusalem to get a legitimate Aaronic priest from the temple of Jerusalem who was truly worshiping the Lord. No, they went and got an idol worshiping renegade Jewish priest from whatever tribe he was from, brought him back to Samaria so that he could teach them what he knew. All right. And this is the process here. But you'll notice in verse 29. Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places, which the people of Samaria had made every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nurgle. The men of, I like Nurgle. I don't know why. It's just the idea of praying to a god named Nurgle I find to be humorous. Um, <laughs> the men of 
of Hamath made Ashamah, the Evites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalech and Anamalek, the gods of the of Sephirvim, I believe. Well, I might misspeak there. I did some study once on Adramalek and Anamalek, and uh, at one point I thought they were a husband and wife kind of marriage deity combination there, but I could be wrong on that. They also feared the Lord. Now, what kind of a duplicitous statement is that? If you're serving false gods, can you also fear the Lord? The very Lord who said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay, you see the inconsistency? The whole idea where you can serve God and mammon. You can worship God and also, you know, the temple of God and the temple of idols. See, Corinthians tells us you can't. You cannot partake of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Or you cannot eat from the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot serve two masters. And yet they're trying. They're forming this, this hybrid, a hybrid religion where they can include the God of this land so the lions will stop eating them. But also, of course, their own pagan deities. So they feared the Lord and served their own gods uh, let's say I didn't read the rest of verse 32. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves Babylonians. You know, recognize who all these people are. Um, people from Babylon, Kuthath, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile to this day they do according to the earlier customs they do not fear the lord nor do they follow their statutes see the author here of kings points out the fact that this just doesn't work you can't blend them and if you try to the end result is is that you are not effectively or truthfully serving the lord so (laughs) the author of kings even points out in verse 35 you know this is the same lord that said you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourself to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. See, if they truly feared Jehovah, then he would be the only God that they would serve, not simply one among many. Now, that's the idolatry of, of uh, the Samaritans. And it goes on down through verse 41. So while these nations feared Jehovah, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Obviously, to this day has reference to the author of Kings at the time in which he was writing. All right. Anybody know who wrote first and second Kings? Nobody, nobody knows. (laughs) There's a traditions. Ezra is one suspected author, but as everything in First and Second Kings tends to end with the uh, fall of Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah is usually thought of as being, or uh, uh, Jeremiah's scribe is thought of uh, as being the author of First and Second Kings. In any event, the author of this text is continues to testify to the idolatry of the Samaritans to this very day, and it continues. Because it continues beyond the Old Testament, through the intertestamental period, all the way into the Gospels. The Samaritans as a people continue to identify as Samaritans, as the true legacy of Jacob, worshiping in the holy mountain of Mount Gerizim, following the true writings of Moses, rejecting those false writings of David and all of his... See, in their mind, David was was too wrapped up in Jerusalem. See... But Moses, when he led the people in, he set up Mount Gerizim as the Mount of Blessing in their minds. All right? When, when Israel recited the blessings and the cursings. Okay? Let's look at the Ezra text. Ezra 4. Because 150 years after the northern kingdom is swept away, the southern kingdom is swept away. Only this time it's no longer the Assyrians in charge. It's now the Babylonians in charge. In between the two conquests... Uh, Babylon had successfully overthrown Assyria, and so now Babylon is the world power. And Babylon takes away the last two tribes of Israel by conquering Jerusalem, sweeping away Judah and Benjamin. Now, after 70 years, though, they're coming back. God promised them they could come back. God brought them back. 
Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they led three waves of returning Jews out of captivity back into the land. Problem. There's Samaritans in the land. <laughs> All right. Who got put there by the Assyrians, who got left there by the Babylonians, who are still there serving and paying tribute to the Persians by this point of time. And so as we read it here in Ezra 4, it's interesting. They're trying to build this temple. They got legitimate priests, legitimate Levites in this process. And uh, it's interesting. We, let's read Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, that is to Jehovah Elohim of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Have they really? No. They've been serving this kind of mongrelized, uh, mixed religious system that included Jehovah among all these other gods, Nurgle and, and that crowd. All right. If I can't remember any of those other names. I'll remember Nurgle forever. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so this then launches a whole cycle of conflict with the uh, Samaritans and a lot of letters get written back and forth, a lot of accusations, even some uh, terrorism and activities there the people of the land discourage the people of judah and frighten them from building see that's terrorism and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of cyrus king of persia that's political terrorism which we have all over the place today and all the different fringe groups that file lawsuits and lobby and complain and all the things that they do in the political realm I think that uh, was the ACLU right there in verse 5 that uh, <laughs> they hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel. See, oh goodness, this is going out on tape. It's going to be on the website. Before we know it, the ACLU is going to say, oops, there's a problem. Oh well. As if somehow this one message this morning is going to offend them any more than the previous 2,528 messages that are already on the website. Now, but notice they want to be affiliated and yet they are not uh, permitted. And uh, more of the conflict will come out through the book of Ezra, through the book of Nehemiah. I think we are woefully um, ignorant with respect to some of these things in Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, the crafting of the Samaritan Pentateuch and the, the final separation and the total hostility between these people is... Uh, Something that that uh, maybe we need to understand or do more study with so we can understand it a little bit better. But such was the hatred that uh, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when uh, the golden age of the Jews arose, as they call it, when the Maccabean era was was fully launched and the Jews gained their independence from the Greeks and uh, they established this Levitical kingdom where they put a, a Levite on a throne and called him a king, one of their first orders of business was not only to exalt their temple there in Jerusalem, but uh, John Hyrcanus actually takes a bunch of Jewish soldiers up here to Sikar, to Mount Gerizim, and totally obliterates the Samaritan temple. Totally destroys the Samaritan worship system, destroys the Samaritan temple, destroys uh, their altar. Um... It's amazing. We have this woman at the well who's talking about this holy mountain, but it's a holy mountain that used to have a temple on it until the Jews came and totally destroyed it. See, interesting uh, history at work here. In any event, this is the setting for Jesus Christ, back to John 4 now, who's sitting at this well adjacent to Mount Gerizim, and this woman, when she finally finds out that he's a prophet, is very eager to find out whether this Gerizim claim is legitimate or whether her people have been deceived. 
and whether the true holy mountain actually is Mount Zion, whether it truly is Jerusalem, as the Jewish people say that it is. And the Lord's going to be very clear in his answer. Salvation is of the Jews. That is, they are God's stewards. And Jerusalem is the location where he chose to have his house built. So, back to John 4. Point 6. Jesus Christ engages in this conversation from the standpoint of prophetic foresight. I want to keep this in our thinking as we go verse by verse. Jesus Christ engages in this conversation from the standpoint of prophetic foresight. He knew that this woman would have positive volition to the gospel message. He knew that this woman would have positive volition to the gospel message. It'd be kind of fun if you and I could engage in conversations with prophetic insight. <laughs> You know, instead of prophetic insight, I tend to approach conversations with pathetic hindsight. All right. Where after the hindsight, where after the conversation's over, I look back in hindsight and in a pathetic manner, I think about the things I should have said. Right. So there's your contrast. You either have prophetic foresight or you have pathetic hindsight. And that's, I think, the class we're all in pretty much. Some of us more pathetic than others, maybe. Well, let's keep in mind, Jesus Christ is a functioning prophet. Uh, we saw some principles related to this in terms of omniscience Sunday morning, but I don't want to, I don't want to get us thinking in terms of omniscience per se. I want us to be thinking in terms of a prophet because the key here is that she is, that he is a prophet and she identifies that. She says, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet and that's what's going on here. But we do spot nevertheless in verse 10, a concept Related to Jesus Christ as a prophet that also ties into concepts of omniscience that uh, we looked at on Sunday. Because it deals with the, the potentials. It deals with the would-haves and could-haves. Right? When uh, God spoke with reference to Capernaum and with reference to uh, those cities and compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he highlighted the would-haves. If the miracles had been done in you that were done in Sodom and... Or if... The miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented. They would have remained to this day. Jesus Christ spoke and rebuked those cities because they were given amazing miracles and still, for the most part, had hardened their heart and rejected the Christ. And he points out that, you know, the walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of lame people and all these other things, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, all these other things. If, if those kind of miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would remain to this day, see, as thriving centers of positive volition and Bible teaching. Man, try to envision that parallel universe. Okay? God in His omniscience knows all the potential outcomes of volitional decisions. Alright? Now we saw that on an omniscient basis on Sunday, but here we're looking at prophetic insight that identifies the positive volition because he knows the would-haves based upon her knowledge. I'm skipping ahead just a little bit because we haven't actually gone to the concept here where he says, give me a drink, and she says, you know, uh, what are you talking to me for? But just look at verse 10 for the moment. If you knew the gift of God, this is a second-class condition of if, it is not true. If and you don't. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. See, but because you don't, you aren't. Because you don't know yet, you aren't yet asking for this water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. See, now here is through the prophetic office. Here is where Jesus Christ is being shown the positive volition that this woman will exhibit once she comes to know that he is truly the Christ. 
which happens a few more verses down the road here. Once he just plainly says, when she says Messiah is coming and he says, I am. She's convinced. Positive volition responds. All right. But by being given the prophetic foresight, by being given the the heads up. Again, put yourself back. We, I gave you this example before, but Samuel's sitting there minding his own you know, prophetic business. And the Lord comes to him and says, by the way, at about this time tomorrow, this tall, dark and handsome guy is going to come traipsing along through here looking for his father's donkeys. I want you to take him and anoint him king of Israel. Okay? This is the kind of briefing, work assignment briefing that the Lord gives to his prophets. We see it very vividly with Samuel there in that illustration. We see it here. We saw it already when the Lord was picking out his disciples when, when Nathaniel was underneath the tree. Praying. See. So here we have another aspect of this. They're not coincidental. See? When the Lord you know, they, they pull up here and and uh, the Lord just kind of stretches and says, Oh, you know, I'm tired. Uh, I tell you what, you guys, you go on in here and buy food, I'll wait for you here. Wink, wink, wink. To himself, see. Because he already knows that he's got a work assignment coming up. He knows this woman's coming out. All right? Prophetic foresight. He knew that this woman would have positive volition to the gospel, to the gospel message. If you knew, you would have asked. Recognizing that the positive volition was ready to be expressed as soon as she could identify the Christ. Now, you and I don't have that. <laughs> you and I can't look at a person on the street... And know if they're going to respond with positive volition or negative volition to the gospel message. We can't know that. I mean, evangel- how easy would evangelism be if maybe, you know, there would be a yellow glow, some kind of an aura. You would walk up to a person and shake their hand. And if you got a little tingle, you know, a little uh, electric jolt to your hand, you go, ah, positive volition to God consciousness. And say, let me tell you about faith in Jesus Christ. See, but if somebody was negative at God consciousness, you'd shake their hand and there'd be, you know, nothing, you know, no, no tingle, no yellow glow, no indicator. See, we don't have that. That's why we're accountable to give the gospel to anybody, anybody and everybody. But Jesus Christ has this and he understands that she is going to respond. And this is his work assignment. This is his work assignment. He knew that he must. He had to pass through Samaria. That's verse four. He had to pass through Samaria. And I believe that was not just simply for the haste of physical safety. Because if he was really wrapped up in, in making this escape, he's going he's gonna to dilly-dally here for two full days. <laughs> you know, he's going to linger for two days even though John's been arrested and these guys want him. He's going to stay here for two days and teach these Samaritans. Point seven, he asks her for a drink of water and his willingness to ignore racial and gender barriers is of great interest to this woman. He asks her for a drink of water and his willingness to ignore racial and gender barriers is of great interest to this woman. Verse seven and verse nine. Class must be almost over. I'm out of coffee. (laughs) Verse 7 again, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 9, as she expresses her shock. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's uh, putting it light, lightly. <laughs> you know, the uh, I highlighted for you last week the nature of John wanting to call down fire, James and John wanting to call down fire. Also the fact that because they're going northbound, they're going to be sold food. And we can only, we can only imagine the price that they paid. Okay? Um, 
later on when they're headed southbound, when they're en route to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage for, uh, for uh, the Passover, there's nothing for sale. They're turned away at the gates. Okay, northbound, all right, we'll sell you food at triple rate, let's just say. Three times what, uh, what a Samaritan would have to pay. But if you're headed southbound, not for any price. That's the hostility. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But by virtue of him asking her, even speaking to her, it, it grabs her attention. And I think we can have that similar effect and similar uh, approach in our evangelism, in our willingness to discuss eternal life, and our willingness to discuss Jesus Christ with anybody we come across. See, regardless of their race, regardless of their uh, social status, regardless of anything else that in our modern society might be a, a barrier between us talking to them. See, because everybody needs the gospel message. Point eight, Jesus speaks to this woman in spiritual terms, but she only hears him in earthly terms. The, the early part of this conversation is going to go very similar to how it went with Nicodemus in chapter 3. You know, where Christ is trying to talk about being born again. Nicodemus is trying to figure out how to crawl back into a human mother's womb and get born a second time. You know, that, that disconnect with speaking in spiritual terms and a person that's only hearing you in, in worldly terms. This conversation is going to start off fairly similar because Christ is going to be speaking of living water and she's thinking in terms of the well right here and trying to reach down in there and you don't even have you didn't even bring a cup or a rope with you and what are you trying to do? All right. Very interesting parallels between chapter three and chapter four with a Jewish religious man with with uh, the, the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jews on the one hand and with a Samaritan woman on the other hand. It's a it's a contrast yet a parallel in these two chapters. Both of them need the gospel. Both of them need to accept Christ as the, as the Messiah. And, fortunately, both respond. Nicodemus is saved. This woman here is saved. Well, um, before we get into this, this is 10 through 15. I already read verse 10. And then uh, her response in verse 11. And she is all confused. She starts asking questions with an incredulous tone. Just like Nicodemus. How can a man being old be born again? You know, this dismissive question with an incredulous tone. You've got to be out of your mind. What are you talking about, born again? She's saying, you've got to be out of your mind. What are you talking about? You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this water? Okay. So we'll come back one week from today, which is the 13th. And then we'll have two Wednesdays off. Um, I think that's right for the Kiev trip. So we'll have one more shot at this next week to wrap up this event. Um, we're through point eight. There's only eight more to go. And then uh, we'll have a two-week break as, uh, as I'll be overseas in Kiev. Ladies, of course, are still welcome to meet for prayer, but there will not be a Bible class during the two weeks that I'm gone. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, I pray that we might learn from these examples, that we might be eager to uh, look upon the fields that they're white for the harvest. Father, this was a work assignment not only for Jesus Christ, uh, but the disciples had an opportunity to bear fruit while they were in the city and because uh, there was positive volition in there too. But uh, all they came out with was earthly food. And uh, Father, I pray that we would learn to be imitators of Jesus Christ and seeking the uh, spiritual fruit to bear and uh, learn to have our eyes open to the fields that are truly white for the harvest. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.